Welcome everybody. Today is Tuesday, June 14th, and on Tuesdays we have Mr. Dwoskin. So Mr. Dwoskin, the floor is yours. Thank you, Angela. Sorry for the bit of a technical problem delay. These things happen like this. Um, as this is like just the sort of second, uh, uh, second class in, in this um, uh, summer series, uh, and because I was, um, I was uh, uh, on hiatus, let's say for a few months, a couple of months anyway. So I wanted to just go over some of the most important things that are happening now and talk a bit in detail about them and we'll see sort of how far we go. And just to bring people up to date, um, with uh, a few observations here and there. So, um, you know, when, when I left last, it was a couple of months ago and the war in the Europe and the Ukraine had just begun and no one really kind of understood uh, what would happen, what the objectives were of Russia and um, uh, where it would all lead. And now we're over a hundred days in. In other words, this war has already gone on for more than three months. And um, it uh, has not changed a whole lot in, in those three months. In other words, um, uh, Russia has definitely made progress in conquering parts of the Ukraine in three months, but not a lot of progress and at a huge cost. Um, the war began uh, with the um, uh, crossing the line in the um, eastern part of the Ukraine uh, in provinces which were already one-third held by Russian-backed separatists. So the provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk were, um, were invaded by Russian-backed so-called separatists who had fought the Ukrainian army to a standstill. And where the standstill was, was the kind of line of... Um, a line of um, line of control, uh, so that east of the line, the line which was occupied by the separatist-backed government, the uh, Russian-backed separatists, um, that was held by them for a long time, and to the west of the line was still held by the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military. Meantime, of course, civilians were living in in kind of both parts. Um, uh, Many of them left for more safer areas because um, ongoing shelling was, was sporadic, but it was ongoing. So um, some of those areas were depopulated. Now those areas, the two provinces are the easternmost provinces of the Ukraine. They're the provinces in which the people are mostly uh, Russian speaking. They're provinces in which in, in previous democratic elections, the population voted for um, Russian-speaking uh, politicians who backed Russian rights um, of the Ukrainian people. So, in other words, um, these were the most, in a sense, pro-Russian of all the Ukrainian provinces. So, since those hundred days are over, the Russian troops have now, uh, by now, conquered or captured pretty well all of the entirety of those two provinces. Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, collectively, those provinces are called the Donbass, in case you, you might have heard uh, that name, sort of the Don Basin. And they are the center of the coal and steel industries in the Ukraine. And formerly were the centers of the coal and steel industries in all of the Soviet Union. 
So they have a very long history then of um, industrialization, of heavy industry, uh, machine parts, uh, uh, producing steel and things made out of steel. Um, so after you know so much effort then, um, and such a huge cost, uh, the Russians have uh, really, as of today, now conquered both of those provinces. The cost has been one of um, destruction in those places. So in other words, it wasn't as if the troops rolled in and other ones retreated or surrendered. The Ukrainians fought um, for these territories, uh, you know, inch by inch. And uh, in order to conquer them, the Russians pretty well destroyed everything that was in front of them. The most famous example is the city of Mariupol, the city on the Black Sea, um, which uh, was, uh, had a population pre-war of 400,000 people, and which was a center of one of the largest steel plants in, uh, in the former Soviet Union. And uh, the city just didn't surrender and the Russians kind of bombed it uh, from the air and shelled it from the land uh, until they pretty well destroyed uh, over a quarter uh, of the um, dwellings in the city and the completely and the rest of them are all you know, pretty well uh, shot up. And um, the Ukrainian uh, troops, uh, as you might remember the story, they, they, they sort of, um, collected themselves up in the old steel plant, which was an enormous uh, factory. And uh, in the end, we're sort of forced to surrender, uh, you know, practically having fought down to the last man. And so that was one of the, the, the second biggest port on the Black Sea belonging to the Ukraine. And that one was taken over. Um, the, uh, the, uh, so uh, again, to go back to those two provinces, uh, previously, the Russians had already controlled one third of them. And so, you know, in these subsequent months, they've captured the other two thirds of them. They've also captured some land um, and some territory uh, uh, in the south along the Black Sea going into the next door province. Uh, but they haven't uh, succeeded in capturing Odessa, the, the main port of the Ukraine on the Black Sea, and uh, to make a bridge from there sort of going into Romania. So that the, the Ukrainians have still uh, are in control of the Black Sea, although the Russians have um, uh, put sort of a blockade by, um, by putting warships outside the uh, port of Odessa not to allow any ships to pass. So effectively speaking, then, the Ukrainian access to the Black Sea and from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean is, is cut off. And of course, that's the Ukraine's only port. Um, so the Russians have made you know, military gains, but um, they have already lost more soldiers in three months than they lost in nine years in Afghanistan. And uh, that's a quite a strong uh, statement. They've also um, have, were forced to uh, kick out or dismiss the chief of the army and to replace him with someone else because of the very poor showing that the Russians have done uh, to date in the war. Remember that the Russians do have pretty well control of the skies. And uh, once you have that, of course, it gives you such a great advantage. 
Um, um, the Russians, though, uh, at the beginning, seemed to want to capture all of the Ukraine, and especially the two biggest cities in the Ukraine, which are Kiev, the capital, and Kharkiv, the, uh, the former capital of the Ukraine. And Kharkiv is one of those uh, Russian-speaking cities that's located in the Ukraine. But they were not able to succeed in both cases, um, although they were able to cause a lot of damage from the air. Uh, by bombing selected targets, including many civilian targets, um, you know, factories, hospitals, and schools, and things like that. Um, the, the world would look at this performance and say that it's a flop. Uh, Russia, which had the reputation of having one of the world's strongest militaries, has now been shown to have a kind of a disorganized, demoralized, um, uncoordinated uh, military force, which um, has managed very modest success in, in, in given all the effort that they've been putting into it. Um, and of course, um, the, uh, the, um, the, the Russians have not really stated in a sense uh, what their end goals are in this war. Uh, the Ukrainians, of course, their end goals are to defend as much as possible of their country. Uh, for them, it's a defensive war, uh, not an offensive war. But Russia never made it clear if they're trying to capture all of the Ukraine or some of the Ukraine or, or what even they would do with the parts that, that they did capture. Would they put them in the hands of some Ukrainian, uh, uh, let's say, um, you know, stooges? or would they try to annex the territory directly into Russia? Um, it's not clear what, what their end game is or what their end goal is. And I'm not even sure they know themselves what their end game is. Um, the uh, blockade of Odessa as a port that I mentioned before has meant that the huge amounts of exports of Ukrainian grain and, and vegetable oil are all held up. And that's led to, of course, the rise in price of uh, wheat and, and oil, um, you know, from markets all around the world. Um, um, the uh, the uh, the other the other uh, you know sort of uh, what what the Russians thought they could do was to mobilize the Russian-speaking part of the Ukraine, which is the far the the, the the Eastern Third, to make those people back um, the Russian invasion. But the, exactly the opposite effect happened, that the Russian-speaking Ukrainians, um, although formerly sympathetic to Russia, have by and large completely turned against Russia because of the destruction that Russia has caused, because of the civilian uh, war crimes that they've committed, um, murdering people on the street, and because of the looting and the, the theft and the just general um, uh, terribleness that their lives have entered into. Um, they've also pushed away the uh, members of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, people who were um, part of the Russian Orthodox faith associated with Russian Orthodox Church hierarchy. So those people have also been turned away uh, and have uh, many of them have joined the Ukrainian National Orthodox Church. So instead of Russia sort of gaining itself allies in, in uh, the Russian-speaking parts of the Ukraine, uh, 
they've kind of done the opposite. Um, uh, within Russia itself, of course, uh, Russia, uh, when the war began, uh, invoked a kind of a severe censorship uh, system, uh, a canceling of any non-supportive uh, uh, opinions in the war. They've closed down radio stations, they've closed down local newspapers, uh, they've arrested uh, opponents, political opponents, cultural opponents, social opponents. Um, they've made it dangerous to express any opinion except uh, an opinion supporting the Russian invasion. But of course, uh, many people in Russia nowadays um, have learned the facts. Uh, many of them don't support the government. Probably most of them do because they don't know the full story of how this invasion took place. But uh, as the war uh, goes on and on, more and more people are going to uh, change their opinion simply because uh, we've seen it before in, in history, you know, especially the war in Vietnam, um, which, uh, you know, by the end uh, had so many more people against it than for it. Um, you know, it, it's hard to keep away the, the, the news of people being ki killed and injured. Uh, there's a lot of communication on a private level between different members of the society. And, um, you know, there have been so many Russians who've left the country who are able then to communicate with their friends and relatives back inside the country that um, there certainly is not a unanimous uh, approval of this war in Russia itself. Um, the um, the uh, biggest failure that Russia had was to unite all of Europe outside of Russia against Russia in the backing of this war. So uh, previously, where uh, there were countries who were some more favorable to Russia, some less favorable to Russia, this war has really united all of Europe uh, in, in favor of the Ukraine, both uh, to support it uh, militarily by giving weapons, by giving money, by accepting refugees to come to uh, the Ukraine, by flying the uh, Ukrainian flag, um, and by boycotting Russia and Russian products. Um, all of this, all of these um, re resulted from uh, Russia's war and, and, and all are negative things as far as Russia is concerned. Um, I was in Europe just three weeks ago. That's why I wasn't teaching. I was in, not, I mean, I was in Europe for three weeks and got back a week ago, uh, mostly in Italy and in Greece. And, um, you know, wherever we went, we saw Ukrainian flags um, hanging out of windows. And um, surely that expresses the um, opinion of the of Europeans against this war and against Russia in particular. Um, uh, you all know and heard that Sweden and Finland, who were previously neutral, uh, applied to join NATO. Uh, that the Ukraine has applied to join the European Union and uh, that the Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia are especially on edge and especially um, beefing up their defenses such as they are. Uh, Poland has become the kind of heartland or the chief uh, opponent of Russia in Europe and has strongly spoken out against the war and is strongly backing all kinds of transfers of weapons to the Ukraine. 
and has accepted uh, millions of uh, Ukrainian refugees already. Um, even the Orthodox countries in Europe, like um, Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria, and Greece, Macedonia, all of these are, are predominantly um, uh, Christian Orthodox countries. They've all come out against Russia. And, and only uh, Serbia is the small exception to that uh, list of countries. And Hungary as well, for, for opportunistic reasons, um, has sort of declared itself to be neutral in this whole, uh, in this whole thing. Um, the biggest decision taken, of course, was the boycotting of Russian oil and gas, on which most of Europe is dependent, and which has cost Europe a lot of money, and uh, certainly in terms of higher prices. Um, but um, Europe felt strongly enough that they had to teach Russia a lesson that they could not continue to do business as normal uh, on the one hand and invade a fellow European country on the other hand. So all kinds of um, uh, alternative sources have been uh, looked at. You might have heard that the head of the European Union, Ursula van Leyen, has made a visit to Israel this week and she's trying to figure out how to get Israeli gas from the Mediterranean into Europe. So just as this step is being done, there's you know, thousands of steps in so many other places being done at the same time. I was, you know, after so much hesitation on the part of uh, the world in, in general to stop uh, exploring for and producing oil and gas, this sort of national emergency has had the opposite uh, effect. And uh, Great Britain has just approved the, um, the opening up of an enormous uh, gas field uh, off of the coast of Scotland, which was kind of in abeyance for so long. And, um, and so many steps like this are being taken. Um, where Russia can sell its products, especially its oil and gas, it's selling them at a big discount over uh, the world price simply because uh, the countries buying it are now in the bargaining uh, seat. But you know, this war has led to this big increase in the price of oil and gas. And, uh, you know, uh, oil, which was trading uh, at around $80 a barrel, it jumped up to 120-ish. So it's a 50% increase. And even if the Russians have to give up half of that increase, they're still better off than they were uh, before the war started. In fact, uh, continuing on that, uh, you know, on that theme, the Russian ruble having dropped, you know, to uh, from about 80 to the dollar, to as low as 130 to dollar. Uh, last time I checked was in 60, 60 something to the dollar. Let me just have a look over here. Let me take a quick, me quick look. Uh, in the end of May, what was it here? 66 to the dollar. So um, it's, um, it's uh, benefited because of all the money flowing into the country on the one hand from sales of uh, mostly oil and gas. And, um, and uh, the uh, stopping of imports, which uh, they would have to pay for in foreign currency uh, because so many countries are not selling to Russia anymore. So the, therefore the balance of trade uh, piles up strongly in favor of Russia. And that's where the, the strength of the ruble comes from. Uh, still their economy has been greatly affected. Uh, you know, Western companies stopped dealing with them. 
Um, many have pulled out. Um, the, one of the big ones was BP uh, Oil, which uh, uh, sort of abandoned or slash sold off their holdings in Russia. Um, the uh, tourist industry is completely dead in Russia. Uh, one of their big money makers was the cruise ship industry going to St. Petersburg, and uh, that's been completely stopped. Um, so uh, certainly the average Russian consumer knows that something is not the same as it was before. Um, there's also been uh, a lot of uh, writing, and I read a good article today about billionaires pulling their money out of Russia. And uh, I saw one today, you might've seen it, where Canada is the number nine country for billionaires to move their money to. Um, Canada is having a net gain of a thousand billionaires a year, but of all places, Israel is getting uh, 2,500 um, net billionaires a year coming to the country. And uh, these are pretty well, um, pretty well, uh, mostly all from Russia. Uh, so, um, you know, this does have an effect in the long run on the economy of the country, on the strength of the country, on the ability of the country to invest uh, and develop. Um, the, uh, the country has, you know, uh, turned into a kind of a siege mentality. And of course, sometimes when you put the stress on a country like that, they uh, will um, it, it turn stronger to resist any outside pressure that they feel if, that the world is putting the, on them unfairly. Or sometimes they just will go very passive and uh, do as little as possible and just try to survive until you know maybe the next uprising. Um, and sometimes this has the effect of uh, inducing a stronger opposition. Uh, you know, Putin's uh, roots are in the KGB, and he has a very strong uh, control over the secret service police of Russia. And so his rule in this situation is not in immediate danger. Only if uh, there is a, you know, a rout of Russian troops, if there is a huge disaster, if, um, you know, many, many more are killed, uh, then uh, some of the security forces might think, uh, might think of um, replacing him. Um, he is 70 years old, by the way, and he has been in power now effectively for 20 odd years. And so um, if this war does continue badly, uh, his position might be in a bit of a danger. Uh, on the other hand, of course, he's in one of these uh, situations of... Um, uh, being forced to, um, uh, you know, when you make a bad mistake, sometimes you can't turn around and go back because it makes you look bad. And that's the situation that he's in. So uh, as far as he's concerned, he has no choice at this point. He's, he's in for a dime, so he might as well be in for a dollar. He's, he's gone so far that to turn around, uh, if he did turn around, and retreat or, or kind of, let's say, have a ceasefire of peace, people would say, well, what was this all for? You know, wh why, why did we suffer so much? Why did we sacrifice so much economically and, and politically and militarily uh, and just to get nothing? So uh, he kind of uh, has eliminated all the options for himself, except to keep on going. 
but keeping on going without any real understanding of where he's going. So really he kind of, in a way, trapped himself or made a, an awful mistake in, in launching this, this particular, this war, um, because he's the only one who can decide how it ends and where it ends. Um, um, it's, it's uh, you know, at this point, it's pretty clear that he can't, he's already, let's say, captured the, the, the easiest, taken the easiest parts for Russia, because those are the parts closest to Russia. Those are the parts, as I was saying before, which are Russian speaking. And so there is some of the population who supports him. But the further west he goes, the farther he will be from Russia, the longer the supply lines, uh, the fewer uh, Russian sort of sympathizers he would find in the population. And also the closer he, the further uh, west he goes, the closer he's coming to Eastern Europe uh, where uh, Ukrainian uh, help is coming from, where weapons are being shipped in overland uh, into the Ukraine. So he's getting farther from his own supplies and closer to the weaponry which is being shipped in from Western Europe. So therefore, in other words, he's done the easy part and the longer he, the war goes on, he's gonna end up doing the harder part. And in the meantime, um, you know, they've used up the, probably the best of their supplies and the best of their soldiers. And um, so that's why the Ukraine sort of feels that in the long run, if this keeps going on, um, you know, they have a chance to turn things around. But, you know, needless to say, the objective facts are that the Russian army is bigger than the Ukrainian army, and sometimes size alone matters. Um, there have also been uh, lots of reports of desertions, of refusing to fight, of sabotage in inside of Russia itself. I was reading one report of a, um, a uh, munitions um, uh, fuel uh, company uh, being blown up in Siberia, where they were making rockets and fuel for rockets. Um, the um, supplies that the Russians need from the West to make their uh, weapons. In other words, let's say control, uh, computer parts, um, uh, maybe, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, electronics that are not made in Russia, but they're made maybe in Japan or in Korea or somewhere else. Those things aren't coming in. And so without those controls, uh, you know, they can't really make good quality weaponry and they've already used up a lot of the stuff they already have. So you can look at this sort of thing on, on in, in, two, in, in two ways, you know, sort of uh, the momentum is with Russia, so the momentum will continue or that they're kind of just burning themselves out and at some point or other, they'll have no choice but to go backwards. Um, uh, the, the morale in some cases, oh, we've read of the troops are so bad that um, they uh, have just uh, uh, kind of uh, given up and surrendered themselves or just refused to fight. And there's even, I was reading today about a whole uh, kind of a unit or brigade, I don't know what you call it, of uh, Russians who've gone to the Ukraine to fight for the Ukrainian army. 
and they're wearing uh, armbands with a um, white and blue uh, patch on it, signifying the Russian flag, which is red, white, and blue. And they took the red out because the red is, you know, blood. And so they're fighting with uh, just the white and the blue patch, uh, you know, in, in favor of the Ukraine. Of course, if these people ever get captured, don't ask what could happen to them. Um, um, the, uh, you know, when the, when the war started to break out, Ukraine at some point was ready to, uh, let's say, come to a ceasefire and to uh, acknowledge um, the gains that the Russians made without recognizing it formally. But it seems as if, um, it seems as if that their morale has changed and uh, they're less willing to give up territory that they lost because they feel if they keep uh, persevering that they will be able to gain some back. And there are parts of the, the front where the Ukrainians have actually pushed the Russians back, um, especially around the city of Kharkiv in the north. Um, and uh, also uh, outside of Kherson, which is the, the largest city that the Russians have captured in, um, in, in the south uh, part of the country. Um, the, 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 um, the war, of course, along with everything else, is responsible for the financial crisis that the world is experiencing now, the high inflation, <clears throat> the rise in interest rates, the stock market uh, dropping 20% uh, from the high. Um, I don't know what amount the Russian war is responsible for this because, uh, you know, uh, economics are, are a complicated science and it's hard to know what caused what. But uh, certainly the, uh, the, the war precipitated the, um, the jump in the, in the oil and gas prices and that sort of fed into everything else uh, down the chain, down the line. Uh, other things that fed into it, of course, are the COVID um, epidemic and the sort of recovery from that epidemic where all of a sudden people, you know, got out of their houses all at the same time, decided they wanted to travel all at the same time, started buying um, uh, cars and buying uh, houses and buying all kinds of things all at the same time. And uh, you ended up with a situation of more uh, demand and supply, which of course pushes prices up at the same time. So um, the, uh, the, the war in the Ukraine is definitely a contributing factor. And my guess is if, if some sort of ceasefire were to break out, um, the opposite effects would happen, that the uh, stock market would go up and that the prices of, uh, of raw materials would stabilize uh, because you, you know, uh, uh, supply would catch up with demand. Uh, I've mentioned before that the Ukraine and the Russia together are the world's largest wheat exporters. They're the world's largest um, uh, oil. Uh, uh, well, Russia is the, one of the world's largest oil exporters, um, the world's largest uh, vegetable oil uh, exporters. And Russia and Belarus together are among the world's largest fertilizer exporters. 
So, uh, you know, if all these products are being taken off the market, which they are not, but if they all were taken off the market, this would lead to a, a huge jump in prices and a shortage. But, uh, you know, for those people who think that, that things are always so simple, they're really not. And um, supply always has a way to catch up with demand. So in other words, if there's a boycott of Russian oil or Russian wheat or Russian something or else, it always can get traded to third parties and fourth parties who then ship the stuff around and you know, it ends up coming back to the consumer always at a higher cost. So it's not as if the world is, is uh, being um, deprived completely of all these products. It's just, that, it's just that the way they make their ways to markets is slower and more, uh, more circuitous, we'll say. Um, um, one of the, one of the uh, effects of this kind of sudden jump in uh, food prices is that countries tend to become quickly very self-protective. And uh, so many uh, political rulers understand that food is such a basic part of people's uh, budgets that if the prices go up too quickly, their, their, their voters become very dissatisfied very quickly. And they have to do everything they possibly can to stop this uh, in order to preserve themselves in power. You'll notice that uh, President Biden, um, his approval rating is down in the uh, low uh, or mid 30s, um, which is uh, you know, very, very low for a president. And pretty well all of it can be laid at the feet of the uh, inflation uh, problem that the world is going through. And um, uh, you know, this inflation problem is highlighted by the price of gasoline, diesel fuel, and everything else that gets transported, uh, the price gets fed into that. There have been huge jumps, uh, and we all know it from our own selves, from our own daily shopping, huge jumps in the price of, uh, uh, of many of the things that we buy. And, um, you know, the buck stops here, so the president is the one in charge. Well, similarly, in other countries, the same thing happens. And um, in order to, um, and countries which are poor, we have to say, spend a larger percentage of their budget on food. So the very poorest of countries in the world, uh, like in, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, 40% of their household budget goes just for food. Um, and uh, to keep the price stable, governments have to really jump through hoops to do that. Uh, one of the hoops that they jump through is, in, let's say in the case of India, uh, is to uh, stop exporting food to other countries. Uh, that leaves more food at home. That will lead to more supply. More supply leads to lower prices because demand in something like food is pretty uh, inelastic. In other words, you're only going to eat three meals a day. And, um, you know, uh, if the food price goes down, you're not going to, you know, consume that much more. And uh, if they forbade, which they did, the export of wheat in India, uh, that leaves a lot of extra wheat lying around in the country, and then people can sort of pay less for it. The same logic applies to uh, other countries and other products uh, in the food chain, and most notably the uh, palm oil industry in uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, 
And, um, you know, palm oil is like I was did mention before, it's pretty well the most ubiquitous oil used in all of the world for food. And um, it's, um, it's uh, uh, the fear of those countries were that if vegetable oil was not available to come out of uh, the Ukraine, the sunflower oil, for example, uh, then that would push up the demand for palm oil and that would push up the prices of palm oil and local people who only use palm oil for cooking would have to pay more and therefore to stop that they said well we're going to temporarily stop exports of palm oil but that won't last long i can tell you right now because um, the countries would be drowning in the stuff and there's no possible way that the indonesian or malaysian market could possibly absorb all the palm oil that's being produced in those countries uh, you might have read uh, certainly about the clearing of uh, native forests uh, in uh, Borneo uh, and other parts of Indonesia to plant palm oil plantations. And I myself have flown over these places and I've seen down, looking down from the plane, you see a kind of a carpet of palm trees uh, instead of a kind of a native forest of, of you know, haphazard trees. You see row upon row upon row of palm trees as far as you could possibly imagine. And um, the palm oil, uh, the palm oil date, uh, sorry, the palm oil palm tree is so productive. So if you look up at uh, a palm tree and you're kind of used to seeing like two, three coconuts hanging down, well, you know, the date, palm, the, the um, not the date palm, but the palm oil palm tree has these enormous, enormous kind of clusters of palm fruits which are sort of round and purpley when they're ripe. And I mean, there's so many of them on one tree that you can imagine how much production they can get out of uh, millions and millions of different trees like that. Um, the, uh, the, um, the, you know, this crisis kind of just repeats the, the um, knowledge that we have that the world is so interconnected that uh, you know, something that happens one place uh, immediately is felt all around the world. And, and this war just goes to prove all of that all over again. Um, it's obviously the country suffering the most is the Ukraine itself. Uh, they had a population of 40 million people roughly before the war started and uh, 10 million of them have been uprooted. Uh, at least 5 million have left the country. Um, the damages to the infrastructure, to the roads, to the buildings, to uh, uh, schools, hospitals, and everything else will take uh, billions and billions of dollars to repair. And for sure, Russia is not there to spend their hard-earned money on rebuilding the Ukrainian uh, uh, society and Ukrainian cities that they built, that they knocked down. So uh, it just depends now you know, how far this is gonna go. And um, uh, right now it seems as if the, the situation is uh, kind of stable. Uh, uh, and um, it's almost like, uh, almost in a certain way, it, it, it might remind us of the second world war uh, or the first world war where, where the, the war was won really when the United States started shipping 
tons and tons and tons of supplies and planes and ships and everything over to the European front. And it was that, that massive amount of supplies which ended up winning the war. Well, today there's massive amounts of supplies coming into the Ukraine from uh, Western Europe and from the US. And it just depends on how quickly those things can be used and how efficiently. Um, and, and it may surprise us, and I, I don't know for sure, obviously, what's going to happen, but I wouldn't be terribly surprised if the Ukrainians uh, uh, start uh, pushing the Russians back in some of the places. So let me just check my time here. Okay, we, I'd like to speak about something else for, for a couple of minutes. Again, a sort of a, a bit of a review. Um, but uh, this week, if, if you were eagle-eyed, you saw new figures being published um, showing that the uh, levels of CO2 in the atmosphere have reached an all-time high of 421 parts per million. And this observation was taken on the uh, Hawaiian island uh, um, at, at Mauna Loa, the, one of the volcanoes there. They have a fancy lab which takes all kinds of measurements um, besides observing the skies, they take all kinds of measurements of, uh, uh, of air quality and of um, you know, uh, everything to do with the atmosphere. And the reason for that is if you think about it, um, you know, Hawaii is pretty well in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So it's very far from uh, most um, pollution sources. Um, and uh, the, Mauna, the two Mauna Mountains are so high that they can reach above all the pollution, the local pollution in the atmosphere. Um, and you probably know, or you may not know that they get snow often enough. And if you think, you know, does it snow in Hawaii? You say, oh, it's impossible. But on top of those mountains, they have snow uh, regularly. Or, you know, maybe not regularly, but occasionally. Um, so the measurements taken there are in a way the most, um, uh, let's call it pristine in the world because they're not uh, uh, upset by uh, you know, pollution in the cities or concentration of carbon dioxide because of cars and, and, and buses and trucks and everything else that you would find pretty well anywhere else in the world. Uh, and it's very high, you know, so... Uh, that gets you into the pure uh, atmosphere without uh, kind of, uh, you know, the, the local, um, local pollution, we'll say. So 421 parts per million is the highest that the world has recorded in over a million years. And um, this is tested out by ice core samples and testing the, the amount of uh, the, the composition of the atmosphere and those ice core samples being drilled down miles and miles and miles into the earth. And so, uh, you know, they know the age of these ice core samples by, by uh, you know, calculating how deep they are. So we are in a new uh, sort of, uh, let's say, height. Um, previously, 300 was considered to be the maximum, just to give you an idea. And 300 was reached at various points in the world's history, like 800,000 years ago, 400,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, and, and, and in our own time. But they never went over 400. So um, 
this is really a kind of, a, you know, a world record, we'll call it. Um, uh, the, uh, the effects of, uh, of climate change are not hard to see. Uh, you know, just this week, uh, we've had, uh, you know, record high temperatures in the US and Southwest US in India, they had some record high temperatures, uh, huge amounts of rainfall in, in Calgary and in the, this, uh, if you look on the videos today of Yellowstone National Park getting washed away. Um, it's pretty extreme weather that the world has been having. And um, all of this is due uh, in one way or another to the uh, climate change that the world is experiencing. Um, <clears throat> the uh, world, of course, is not, for, uh, you know, is not oblivious to this. And the world has made all kinds of commitments to lower this amount, uh, you know, going back as far as early as uh, certainly into the late 1980s, they've been worrying about this subject. But as you can see, really no change has been happening. So the amount of CO2 is, you know, might change a bit from year to year, but the overall trend is up despite the pledges, despite the solar panels, despite the windmills, despite the electric cars, despite all the different changes that people have made so far. Um, the uh, CO2 in the atmosphere is uh, higher than it's ever been. Now, um, <clears throat> uh, the um, targets that different countries have made, including Canada, have not been met by and large. Um, and that's simply because maybe the targets are unrealistic. Uh, maybe these are wishful thinking. Um, the uh, COVID, uh, epidemic caused a tremendous slowdown in um, travel and transportation and everything else. But once that came off, then sort of people just jumped back into their cars and into planes and onto boats. And, um, you know, therefore the CO2 levels are going back up again. Um, the more people there are in the world, obviously, the more CO2 is going to be emitted by people themselves breathing, by the food that they uh, consume, uh, animals that they consume, um, vehicles that they ride in. Um, just the fact that the world's population is increasing by itself uh, means that the amount of CO2, everything else being equal, will be going up. And also the world has been getting wealthier, richer, especially the poor, some of the poorer countries have been increasing their standard of living. And that means being able to buy a motorcycle. It means being able to eat meat once in a while. And, um, you know, all of these things uh, multiply the um, increase of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, um, People have been talking about adaptation, and uh, you know uh, the 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 changeover to um, producing electricity via uh, non-emitting means. All it all has costs. You know the solar panels and wind power are not constant all the time. The places where solar and and wind energy are available are not close to where the demand for those electricity uh, generation uh, products is. And so new, new uh, sort of 
infrastructure has to be built. Um, the, uh, the world has found out that uh, electric cars are not as, as, um, as nature friendly as you might think, that the requirements to produce batteries for these cars are huge. Uh, the mining of minerals is, is huge. The transportation of these minerals are huge. The uh, uh, electric cars need power, to, of course, to be supplied to them. And, and this power, if it's generated by, um, you know, oil or gas or coal, is, is just as uh, emitting of, of CO2 as a gasoline engine in the car itself. I was just reading about, I don't know if you heard about this, that the demand in California for charging stations was so big that there was a huge lineup uh, outside charging stations and cars ran out of power before they could get to their turn at the pump. So um, there has to be a match between supply and demand in, um, in um, you know, provision uh, of changeover of electrical uh, supply to uh, new, newly bought uh, electric motor vehicles. Um, uh, the um, Prime Minister of Fiji, uh, he was uh, in the UN just making a speech this past week, and he was saying, look, uh, you know, you can understand the world being focused on the war in the Ukraine that I spoke about, but, you know, for countries like his, uh, you know, islands in the Pacific that are low-lying, uh, the rise in sea level is really an ex existential threat. And what he was saying is, look, uh, the world, uh, let's not get caught up on finding new supplies of oil and gas to replace the Russian stuff. Uh, let's continue our fight against climate change because otherwise we're going to be uh, sunk, uh, literally. But, you know, uh, people's uh, attention spans are not that uh, long lasting. And um, uh, sometimes if there's a conflict between these two concepts, uh, the immediate will win out over the long term. I wanted just to point out to you for fans, uh, TV fans, that uh, the, the show Borgen has uh, started again. And I don't know if you, any of you have uh, watched it, but it's this Danish, uh, let me check it, this Danish TV show about the politician uh, trying to survive in the kind of um, uh, serpentine world of Danish politics. And after a 10 year uh, gap, she's back. And the first thing she has to deal with is um, uh, a discovery of oil in Greenland. And on the one hand, she wants to uh, protect the environment, but on the other hand, uh, Greenland wants to uh, develop its resources. So, you know, the first show deals with this conflict and uh, it's a highly recommended uh, show to watch if you are uh, sort of interested in, in political thinking and not so much in shooting and actions. Anyway, it's called Borgen. Um, uh, you know, just to, to, uh, to summarize again, just to finish up with, that Canada of all places is probably the country, one of the couple of countries in the world which stands to gain most from uh, climate change and global warming because we're such a cold country, because we're such an underpopulated country, um, because we have huge heating costs, because we have such long distances between our, our, our cities, um, we use up a lot of, uh, we are the highest emitter per capita in the world of carbon dioxide, uh, meaning that per person, 
We emit more carbon dioxide than any other country in the world. And it stands to reason because we're heating, you know, six months a year. And, um, you know, we can't, uh, we can't uh, take a train from Amsterdam to The Hague, which is 40 miles, when you want to take a train from Montreal to Toronto, which is, uh, you know, uh, 300 miles. So, um, uh, you know, that's the reason. Um, the um, the uh, new thinking about oil now with this war has led uh, BP, BP British Petroleum just announced that they're buying a stake in a Newfoundland oil field and they want to do production there. Um, uh, others are talking about, you know, uh, optimism in the oil and gas industry, which hasn't existed for a while. So, um, you know, Canada is likely to benefit from this type of thing. Uh, do you know that Quebec has oil and gas uh, in our province, um, especially gas, but um, the government, uh, you know, on, on ecological grounds and environmental grounds does not want to develop it. Um, but you never know. They may change their minds at some point or other. Um, the, uh, you know, the opening of the Northwest Passage to travel between, uh, let's say, British Columbia and uh, Newfoundland over the top of the country, if enough melting would to, were to take place, it could be an ice-free passage. And um, that would certainly be of great economic benefit to the country. So, uh, you know, we would have new crops and also attractiveness to immigrants. You know, um, you know, I've met, uh, you know, in my trip to Europe, I've met lots of people who said, oh, Canada is such a great country and we, we love there, we would love to move there, but it's too cold. And uh, who knows, in a century's time, they might say, well, it's not too cold. Um, so, uh, you know, we have to understand, I'll just finish up with this, that um, um, we, I, I believe anyway, that we should put our efforts into uh, adapting to climate change and not trying to turn the clock back and go backwards. Because if you do that, uh, you'll just be frustrated. It will just be a kind of a, a futile, um, uh, you know, a Sisyphus trying to push a rock up a hill. Uh, you can't really do that because the, the things are already gone too far. So uh, with that, I want to uh, thank you all for uh, tuning in and I'm ready to have any comments, questions. Um, I haven't spoken about the um, hearings in the US which have been so riveting. Um, uh, I, I was so impressed with Liz Cheney's uh, uh, remarks. Uh, and maybe we'll have a look at that next week, but uh, it's certainly a subject to uh, speak about. So um, yeah, let me know what you have to say and, um, and thanks again for tuning in. Put this here. Angela, any comments, questions, remarks, anything like that? Not yet. Okay. You know, if I if I were in a classroom, my brother my brother's a law professor, and he walks around this class, and he'll just pick up somebody and say, "You stand up. Tell me what you think about this. Tell me what you think about that." Unfortunately, uh, sitting here on Zoom, it's uh, it, it's not that possible to do. But um, you know, surely you must have ideas or, or, or opinions, either agreeing or not agreeing or 
you know, some, uh, some comment like that. Well, what do you have to say, Angela? Let me see what time it is. Oh, see the clock now. Yeah. Yes. I can't, uh, is that, Angela, is somebody trying to say something? No, I was just saying that there's still nothing. Ah, uh, well, too bad. Too bad. Well, I think um, I'm hoping that um, people enjoy and learn uh, and, and, and sort of, you know, that, that um, looking at things the way I look at them make people think uh, a little bit and, and trying to see that there are more than one side to a story and that there's advantages and disadvantages sort of uh, no matter what happens. And um, um, yeah, in the you know next couple of weeks we'll talk. We can talk about the what's happening in the U.S. And I also believe that um, the government in Israel is going to fall, uh, you know, sooner rather than later. And um, so uh, that is certainly going to be an interesting subject. Um, uh, and um, of course. Um, you know, we haven't spoken much about local, if local things like uh, the Quebec election coming up and the, and the Bill 96 and its effects. So we have lots of different things to speak about. And I hope you all uh, come back uh, on Tuesdays at two o'clock. And, um, you know, uh, we can have a discussion and, and, you know, learn and see where things go. So um, if there isn't anything else, um, thank you. Thank you, Angela, for hosting, and um, I'll see you all next week. Thank you, Mr. Dwoskin, and thank you to everyone listening in over the telephone and online. We shall see you next week. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Look.